Everybody's different. Everybody's recovery is different. Everybody recovers differently. So I believe in all pathways. Whatever works for you, like work it. Because that's what recovery is about. It's taking a new direction. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, like, you only got to change one thing and that's everything. This podcast was produced by the Partnership for Public Health, a nonprofit organization in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We would like to thank the Lancaster County Community Foundation for sponsoring this podcast series. If you know someone struggling with addiction, have them call the National Helpline 1-800-662-HELP. Thanks for tuning into the first season of Jonesing, our podcast about the science behind opioid addiction. I am Zerubabel Asfaw. We're going to take a look at the state of medically assisted treatment through the lives of people who are starting it, are in recovery, and those who can find their path to sobriety. Medication-assisted treatment. We're talking methadone, suboxone, and Vivitrol. Those may be the best methods we have right now to treat opioid addiction, but not that many people are using them. Less than 30%. We wanted to find out why. My name is Susan Baldridge, and I co-produced this podcast with Zerubbabel, a third-year pre-med student. You may have noticed his accent. He's from Ethiopia. And that was Susan. She was an investigative journalist for the past 19 years before coming to the public health field. She has written over 200 articles about the opioid epidemic since it began five years ago in quite little Lancaster County. Also, you may have noticed her accent. She's from Pennsylvania. Some of you may not know what the word jonesing means. We're going to let people in the community tell you what they think. What do you think jonesing means? I'm not completely sure what jonesing means, but I've heard it in the context of hanging out, um, wasting time, jonesing in that way. On this episode of Jonesing, we are focusing on the ties between mental health and addiction to opioids. We actually know a lot about this through studies that have shown the connection between these two factors. We are also going to talk to some people about the childhood trauma they've experienced. We invited a psychologist to explain how some children who have suffered trauma could grow up to struggle with addiction. Science tells us that people who have mental health disorders, including depression and anxiety, have higher rates of illicit drug use. In fact, according to the Board of Family Medicine, about half of Americans who have mental health conditions are taking prescription opioids. Moreover, an unknown number of people who suffer from the same conditions have moved on to use heroin and fentanyl. We wanted to hear from a psychologist who deals with both mental health and addiction issues about why these two are so connected. Uh, my name is Stacy Rivenberg. I'm a psychologist, a licensed psychologist in the state of Pennsylvania, and currently I'm working at Perform Care, which is a managed care organization in Pennsylvania. And my experience and, and what we're seeing in the literature is that they oftentimes are hand in hand. Uh, co-occurring. So the term in the, the field is we're talking about co-occurring. So a lot of times people that have a substance use disorder will have depression, uh, may have anxiety. And a lot of times uh, due to having difficulty with coping or not having access to treatment for a mental health condition, uh, we see people turn to to substances uh, to, to help cope, to relieve those symptoms. That's like Julia who we met on the streets of Lancaster while we were doing interviews. She's only 18 years old, 
but she's already had nine overdoses. Julia has a really interesting story about her own mental health and how that led her into addiction and also an interesting way she got into recovery. I've got PTSD from a plethora of different things, um, bipolar disorder and just generalized depression and anxiety. Um, And uh, out of all of those, I would say the PTSD is what mainly makes me crave just an easy out for what I'm feeling. The other things I can kind of sit with a little bit easier and I feel uncomfortable when they're like flaring up and I got to deal with them. But the PTSD is something that kind of takes you outside of your body and puts you in a whole different time, a whole different place. And you kind of want to do anything you can to just escape that place. Julia's case is actually typical of many young women who have experienced a lot of childhood trauma. Women who use illegal drugs often have mental health problems on top of or along with their addiction. Research shows that mental health disorders like PTSD usually stem from repetitive childhood physical or sexual assaults. And Julia says she's experienced all of these. Sexual, physical, mental, emotional, all of it really. Um, I would say the more just the physical violence is that what triggers me a lot to feel like a little bit helpless, a little bit trapped, um, and then want to use again. Even though men are susceptible to PTSD at lower rates compared to women, it is still a prevalent condition among those with substance abuse disorder. Oh yeah, I had a horrible childhood. I had like a fractured personality, man. Even as a kid, before I even picked up a drug, like I had these so-called character defects. That's James Ivory. He described his traumatic childhood during the interview. I found it surprising that he works on a job to get others into recovery, but he's never heard of something called the ACEs test. That's interesting. We asked Dr. Rivenberg to explain what the ACEs test is. There has been a study that's that's been completed uh, that is followed by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and it's called ACEs, uh, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So what are those? So a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the aspects I just mentioned. So yes, it's the physical abuse, uh, it's the sexual abuse, uh, emotional abuse, meaning you know somebody was making you feel less than, or the threat that you might be physically abused. James says he's open to taking the ACEs test during this interview. Did you ever take the uh, ACEs test? No, what's that? Can I give it to you? Yeah. It's 10 questions. I've never even heard of it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test. And they say that if you score high on it, you have a higher chance of a lot of things. Yeah. You know, which makes sense. But one of it is um, drug addiction. Oh, wow. So, can I ask you 10 questions? Yeah, absolutely. Before your 18th birthday, Mm -hmm. did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? Very often. Okay. 
It's just a yes or no. Oh, okay. Before your 18th birthday, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you or ever hit you so hard you had marks or were injured? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Before your 18th birthday, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way? Yep. Okay. Before your 18th birthday, did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? Yep. Before your 18th birthday, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you? Absolutely. Were your parents too drunk or high to take care of you? Absolutely. Before your 18th birthday, was a biological parent ever lost to you through divorce, abandonment, or any other reason? Yep. Before your 18th birthday, was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or repeatedly hit? In other words, was your mother or stepmother abused? Absolutely. Before your 18th birthday, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or used street drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Before your 18th birthday, was a household member depressed, mentally ill, or attempt suicide? Yes. You have a 10 out of 10. Yeah. That is is striking. I've never met someone with a 10 out of 10. Yep. So I don't know to congratulate you on that, but I congratulate you on where (laughs) you are now. Yeah. So you had it all. All of it, all yeah. of it. My mom had mental health and she had um, drug addiction. She actually passed away in 2016 from an overdose. I think I remember you telling us that. Yep. And how did that affect you? Um, it hurt. Um, you know what I mean? You only get one mom. Like, growing up, we didn't have the best relationship because of circumstances. But as I got older and ended up having my own addiction... I became aware of the disease and how we literally become a slave to it. And it's not that she didn't love us, it's not that she didn't care, she just didn't know how, she didn't, she wasn't able to stop. But I look at it as like, she's not suffering no more. You know what I mean? Um, So she had been um, in active addiction for a long time? mm Mm-hmm, since before I was born. Mm -hmm. And what about your dad? Yeah, my biological dad is still in active addiction. I don't know how he's still alive. Mm. He's, like, smoking crack on oxygen. I'm like, you can't do that. <laughs> Did he live with you or not? Um, I No, he didn't. He was not. He was. I didn't even know he was my real dad until I was, like, 12 or 13. Um, but, like, during my active addiction, I stayed at his house a few times just because I know he would let me stay there because um, he got high. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad that raised me, um, he's in recovery. Mm. He'll actually be celebrating 30 years clean in December. Yep. So, but yeah, I had it all, man. Hmm. It was a horrible, been held hostage uh, by my mom's ex-husband who made me and my little sister watch him beat her almost to death. Um, molested. Uh, by a family member or by a family (laughs) member and by someone that my mom used to get high with he broke into her house Um, I was sold for crack when I was 16 Uh, what else yeah it was it was a lot homeless 
there was times where I didn't have clothes to wear. Yep. So what do you credit? I'm going to even say addiction is a symptom, not a problem in this situation. So what do you credit, like, surviving all that? What do you mean? Like, you, how are you surviving the PTSD of childhood, the abuse, the abandonment? Um, I mean, those are almost bigger issues. Well, yeah. I don't, honestly, I can't, I can't even answer that. A lot of the years I coped with using, um, that's what I knew. Um, but there's something about recovery that helps you work through that stuff. The major finding um, from this study was we found out that the, the more adverse childhood experiences somebody had, the worse off their health was and well-being, which eventually was resulting in uh, mortality issues. In the case of Julia, like many other people with substance abuse disorder, addiction and mental health go hand in hand. So addiction and mental illness, like I said before, is really isolating. There's such a massive community around around recovery. I've met so many amazing people and been to, in the couple of months that I've been out of rehab, I've been to like five or six recovery-based events where there was music and a bunch of people that I met at rehab still like coming out and getting to hug people that I haven't seen in a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And I don't, I don't have any friends from high school anymore. I don't talk to my family as much as I should. Um, and I know that they'd welcome me back with open arms, but the recovery community is a group of people without any judgments. They're not gonna judge you for anything you've ever done in the past, especially done in addiction, because I think it's a very awakened group of people who realize that humans are extremely flawed. After many overdoses, what made you stop using heroin? I overdosed uh, nine times, so that's like once a month. That is not a good track record. And if people hadn't been around with Narcan, I wouldn't be here. If I had been doing it by myself and not with someone who cared about me, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I'm really, really lucky in that aspect, but it took me almost dying nine times to say, holy crap, this is, I'm gonna die and I don't want to. I, no matter how bad my mental illness flares up, no matter how many, tragic things happen to me and around me, I do want to live. I do know that I experience beautiful things almost every single day, and I don't want to miss out on those things. Um, but for a lot of people, it takes extreme, extreme situations for them to actually wake up and pay attention to the fact that what they're doing is going to kill them. They say, like, for users, there's, there's three places you're going to end up. Institutions, jail, or death. That's it. And I've been realizing that more and more every day, that that's the only places I'm going to end up. And those are not the places I want to be. I want to go to Costa Rica and visit my dad down there. And I want to go to Europe. I haven't been there before. I want to do and see a lot of things. And you can't do that from behind bars or from in a casket. Getting back to what we were talking about on this podcast, which is medically assisted treatment, or MAT, Julia did something that is kind of common, but it's not recommended. 
She bought Suboxone illegally on the streets and used it to wean herself off heroin. I actually, I bought Suboxone, not from a clinic. I bought it on the street. I got two strips. I cut each of them in half. And when I started getting to the point where I was goosebumps and sweating profusely, throwing up, I would take one of the halves. I would still feel like crap, but I wasn't throwing up anymore. And then I'd wait until the next day, no matter how crappy I felt, and I'd take another one. So it took me three or four days to get through, like, the real crappy part of the withdrawal. And then I just kind of gritted my teeth through the rest because and one of the most important moments I had in rehab, it was a day that I felt physically the worst. My body was in so much pain. I was getting post-acute withdrawal, which I didn't even know was a thing where after you go through the initial withdrawal, like a week or two later, you get all the symptoms back again after you think you're doing fine. And I felt horrible, I felt so sick, but I mentally, that was the best, most grounded, mindful day I had. I was acknowledging what my body was feeling, I was acknowledging why I felt like that. It was because of what I had done to my own body and what I had put into myself. And I was able to kind of have peace knowing that pain and despair, anguish, whatever you want to call it, is something that every human feels that's part of the human condition. So it's not, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that I felt so sick and so awful. It was part of me becoming a human again. Although the Suboxone did allow Julia to take steps towards sobriety, she wants to warn other people about it. I see the worth in having Suboxone be available for people who feel like they have nowhere to turn. There's a lot of people that have been to 10, 20 rehabs in five years. And if you get to that point, I would take any, any option, any alternative to try something new when it feels like the same thing that you've been doing over and over again isn't going to work. But I do think it, it is dangerous. I mean, the Suboxone clinics that I've been to, anyone can walk into them and get 27, 30 strips of Suboxone and they walk right out the door and there's people standing there to buy them wholesale, to sell on the street, and they just sell them right away. So. It has its, its flaws, and people abuse it, as with any kind of program, I think. People are going to find a way to use it and abuse it. But for the right people, it can help someone be, it can help someone be less prone to death. I mean, heroin is going to kill you. Suboxone, it's, it's going to hurt you, but it's not going to kill you. At least you'll be around to try something new and to keep working your program and to try to get to the place you want to be kind of gives you some time and some space to to grow and to have something that keeps you kind of placated while you do that growing. According to the psychologist Stacy Reifenberg, when MAT is offered along with counseling, it has proven to be effective in helping people achieve sobriety. However, a lot of people are still unconvinced. They believe cold turkey is the only real way to stop using drugs. So we know that trauma changes the brain. These experiences changes the brain, change the brain. So neurodevelopment is impacted. Uh, after neurodevelopment becomes impacted, that then impacts your ability to make choices, the social, social choices. Next time on Jonesing, we will be talking about a topic that is the breaking point for many who are in recovery, relapses. Well, triggers is probably the biggest problem as far as the environment. If the 
depends on what environment you're in, but addiction and drugs and everything, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, that's probably the biggest thing with opioids, is triggers and feelings and emotions and problems and life stressors. This podcast was produced by the Partnership for Public Health, a nonprofit organization in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We would like to thank the Lancaster County Community Foundation for sponsoring this podcast series. We'd also like to thank Colonel Collin, also known as C.J. Shuby. He's a talented musician in long-term recovery himself. He graciously allowed us to use his music. Catch more episodes of Jonesing on our website, partnershipforpublichealth.org, and find us on Stitcher and iTunes. If you know someone struggling with addiction, have them call the National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP.